I believe you would agree with me that our world is in a crisis. It's like a time bomb ready to explode. And many of us are very aware of this in world events. There are many threats to our world today. Terrorism is one of the threats. Terrorism in the Middle East, in Europe. Hopefully not in North America, but it's always a possibility. Uh, We face uh, weapons of mass destruction, whether they be a dirty bomb made of chemical or biological particles, or whether it be a rocket with a nuclear warhead on it. Uh, Oil. Oil could become a weapon as we move on in history by the uh, Arab oil cartel. They might use it as a weapon against Europe, against the United States. Ahmadinejad, you know, has an agenda to try to annihilate Israel. And if he attacked Israel, that could set off a war in the Middle East that would reverberate around the world. Russia Confederacy. Putin uh, seems to be pulling Russia together again, even though he's not going to be President, he's going to be prime minister, and he's probably going to call the shots and pull the strings. We know from Ezekiel chapter 38 that there's going to be a Russian Islamic confederacy that's going to want to come down on Israel. And so this could be on the horizon as we see things develop. Europe's population is declining. And Islamic population is moving into places like England, France, and Germany, and other parts of Europe. And they have big families, and they're growing. Uh, That could impact uh, Western Europe as we move on. The EU is emerging to be a superpower, 27 nations now in the EU, with a population around 450 million people. And this could be a forerunner of the revival of the old Roman Empire. We're just going to have to wait and see. Well, the world is crying out, what is this world coming to? And actually, Psalm 2 tells us what this world is coming to. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's mentioned seven times in the New Testament. It's a Davidic uh, psalm, but when you read Psalm 2, there is no indication here that David wrote the psalm. But you have to go over to Acts chapter 4, verse 25, and when you look at that text, Peter preaching says that David said in Psalm 2. In fact, uh, let me just read that to you very quickly. He said... Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And so Peter is uh, saying that this psalm is penned by uh, David. Um, Psalm 2 is actually a drama that's unfolding as the final stage of world history Uh, is unfolding and comes to fruition. There are actually four strophes here, or four uh, paragraphs, uh, four acts 
in the drama. And there are four speakers that are mentioned here as well. You have David speaking first. You have God the Father speaking. Then you have the Messiah speaking, who it's very clear here is referring to Jesus the Messiah. And then you have the Holy Spirit speaking. And uh, there are four points that we want to make as we see David, God the Father, Jesus the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit speak. The first thing that I want you to see, or the first point, is uh, the revolt against God in verses 1 through 3. You see here that it's a, a furious revolt. Why do the heathen rage, says David, and the people imagine a vain thing? The people here are Gentile nations, the Goy, or the Goyim. And it's their leaders and the people. Uh, they're enraged or they're passionate about something. This word rage means they're in tumult and uproar. You know, you see on the History Channel... When the Greeks go to war against the Romans, or the Romans go uh, to war against somebody, the, the armies yell loud as they march into battle, and there's a tumult and a rage and a loud noise. That's the picture that's being drawn here. And they imagine something, and really the imagination is a premeditating, meditating on devising a plan. And that plan is going to really be a vain thing, it says here, or not come to fruition. It's going to be an empty, vain plan that the nations are planning. And uh, so what is the plan? Well, the focus of the result, you'll notice in verse 2, is against the Lord and against his anointed. The persons are twofold here, uh, against Jehovah or Yahweh, God the Father, and against the anointed, and the anointed in context is referring to Jesus Christ. You know that the word Christos in Greek, or Christ in Greek, means anointed. The word Mashiach or Messiah in Hebrew means anointed. So I think it's very clear here as you read through the psalm, that the nations are against God, the Father, and Jesus, the Messiah. And you'll notice here the position. They set themselves, or they stand in battle array against God. And the plot is they take counsel together. They're devising ways to remove God from their thoughts and from their minds. We know this is going to be true after the rapture of the church in when the Antichrist comes forth and he's going to rule over the nations. Devise plan to put down the knowledge of God. It's very clear when you see and read uh, Revelation chapter 13 verse 5 where he blasphemes God and he blasphemes his temple he blasphemes those that believe uh, in the Lord that are in heaven. And you'll notice what they want to be free from. They want to be free from restraints that God would put upon them. Verse number three. 
Let us break their bands and cast away their cords. Uh, They want to be free from the Judeo-Christian God. They don't want anything to do with God or any restrictions, whether it be ethical or moral, put upon them. They want to eliminate God from their thoughts. And actually, this is the plan of Satan, as especially in the tribulation, to control man through the Antichrist and get to himself the worship that is due only to God, but to get the worship of man for himself. Well, uh, we know down through history, and you've heard some during this conference, that uh, mankind does not want God's rule over him. In the days of Noah, the uh, days of Noah, mankind was uh, so polluted and every imagination of his heart was wicked continually that God had to bring destruction via the flood. You'll remember that Rennie spoke about Nimrod and what uh, he tried to build. He was against God as well. And we heard about that yesterday. All the nations, really, uh, outside of those who are believing people within the nations, seem to manifest and posture themselves against God. Today, Russia claims to be atheistic. China would claim to be atheistic. You have Hinduism and you have Islam. And even though they claim to worship a god... In Hinduism, many gods, but Islam, one god. Still, it's not the god of the Bible. It's not a god of love. The nations are really going to revolt against the Lord, as we've already said, during the time of the tribulation. When you have the revival of the old Roman Empire, you have the Roman Islamic uh, Confederacy, they're going to revolt against God and especially God's people because they're going to try to come down and destroy Israel. The Russian uh, Islamic Confederacy is going to come down, as I mentioned last night, around the midpoint of the tribulation, but the armies will be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist breaks a covenant made with Israel Daniel 9:27, and he is going to take over uh, Israel and set himself up in a Jewish temple, proclaimed to be God, and demand worship of himself and not worship of the true and living God. So we know this is coming. World governments today are anti-God. And so even today, there's a revolt against God by the nations. Well, how does God respond? And that's the second point that I want you to see, the response of God in verses 4 through 6. Here's God's reaction, and he reacts in three ways. First, um, He holds them in derision, it says in verse 4. He who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. God is laughing at puny little man and puny little nations, as Isaiah 
40 tells us they're a drop in the bucket to him. Uh, he laughs, and the word laugh here literally means holding them in derision or mocking at them. You little people, you little nations, think you're going to revolt against me? You must be kidding. It's like us seeing a little ant on the floor standing up, and if an ant could talk, telling us what he thinks of us and what he's going to do to us. You think you're crazy. <laughs> Stamp him out just like that. And we do that. I know that one time uh, Menno was staying with me. I'll tell this story. I don't know if Menno remembers it. But uh, we had an ant hill in my garage being built right in one of the cracks. And uh, I started to spread. Menno says, David, that's not the way you spread. Give me the spray kit. And he wiped them all out. That's that chutzpah, you see, Israeli chutzpah. But anyway, can you imagine the nations? Well, holding them in derision. He mocks at them. The second thing you see here is found in verse 5. It speaks of destruction. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his great displeasure. Now, the word wrath here means burning rage, angry rage, opposition and condemnation and judgment against the people that would revolt against him. Vexing means that he strikes fear and terror and dismay into the people that he's going to come against. We know that God's wrath is going to be poured out during the time of the tribulation. Just read Revelation chapter 16 through 19. And when he pours out the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments upon man's revolt against him, it's going to be horrific. There's 21 different times in these uh, judgments that different things and events are going to happen. And they progressingly get worse. But you know, you think and you look at um, man and how does he react? You'd think man would fall on his face and cry out to God and say, have mercy upon us, forgive us. But not the case. As you get to the bold judgments, they actually curse God for what he has poured out upon them. And they don't come humbly before him. The nations are in rage and revolting against God. And then during the second coming, when the Lord comes back in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18, we see the wrath of God. Verse 11 says, he doth judge and make war. When he comes back, he's coming back to judge and make war against those people who despise him and followed the Antichrist and the nations that have rebelled against him. In verse 14, he says he brings armies with him. A host from heaven are coming with him. A whole angelic host is coming with him. And we who have been raptured away, stood before the bema, had our works judged, been given robes of righteousness, we're coming back with him 
riding on white stallions. If you can't ride, you'll be able to ride then. And we are going to see him pour out his wrath upon the nations at that time. And then in verse 15, he says, it says, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the armies that have come up to do battle. At Armageddon, he only speaks the word. You know, uh, the word of God is powerful. God spoke the worlds in the, in the world into existence, and he created everything ex nihilo. That's powerful. His word is powerful to create, but his word is also powerful to destroy. He can just speak the word, and the armies that came up around Jerusalem at Armageddon, the flesh is going to just be dissolved from their body. Awesome is the word of the Lord. And then in verses 17 and 18, a host of birds come to devour the flesh of this army. And so uh, God uh, is going to respond in his wrath. But there's a third thing here in God's response, and it's a, a decree, and this is found in verse number six. Verse six reads, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill in Zion. It's speaking about the installation of his king. The king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, who's going to sit and rule from Zion. The proclamation here is his rule. And you'll notice... Uh, that he says, I have done it. In God's mind, it's already done, even though the reality of it has not taken place. It is certain it's going to happen, and the Lord here is giving the decree. The third thing that I want you to see here is the reign of God. Jesus the Messiah is God, and that's spelled out here in verses Seven through nine. Um, it says here in verse seven, I will declare the decree, and it's Jesus the Messiah speaking. The Lord, that's Jehovah or Yahweh, has said unto me, that's Jesus the Messiah, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, notice his position, first of all, here in verse 7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's being mentioned here. But let me tell you what this is not. The words, I have begotten thee, is not speaking about his origin, nor his eternal generation, nor his incarnation. It's not speaking about that at all. The words, I begotten thee, are speaking about his right to rule and the uniqueness of his right to rule after his resurrection. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 13 and look at verse number uh, 34. You'll notice here, verse 33 rather, you'll notice here that uh, Paul is speaking and this is what he says. 
God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten you. So it's not speaking about the birth of the Lord, it's speaking about his right to rule. He has been uniquely appointed after his resurrection to rule. Now you'll notice here too, not only the position of Christ to reign, but notice the possession of Christ in verse number 8. In verse number 8, we have the nations being given unto the Lord. In fact, the question's asked, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Here the Lord is going to rule. When the Lord comes back at the second coming, and the picture is pretty dramatic, as you know from uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 shows us just before the Lord comes back, that the heavens are going to be shrouded in darkness. It's going to go pitch dark. And so you can imagine the armies that have come up to fight around Jerusalem. The horror of darkness that's going to fall over the earth is going to get their attention very quickly. And then all of a sudden, as verse 30 says, the Lord's going to appear in the sign, not signs, the one sign of his second coming, is that he's coming in power and great glory. Not just glory, but he's coming in power and great glory. And as he's coming back, he's coming back to take back uh, the inheritance that is rightfully his, the rule of the nations. And so he's coming back to possess the nations. After he comes back, every tongue shall confess, and uh, every knee is going to bow to him as king of kings and lord of lords. He's also, as Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 state, he is going to rule uh, from David's throne. Meaning he's going to sit on David's throne and rule from heaven, I mean, rule here on earth. There are those who say that it's David's throne in heaven that's mentioned here, but no, that's not the case. He's going to sit on an actual literal throne here on earth, and he's going to rule over the house of Judah and the nations. And so he's going to possess the nations as his inheritance, and this is going to take place during the time of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule of the Lord on the earth. And then you see here the power that he is going to have over the nations in verse number 9. Notice how it reads, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this happens when Christ comes back to rule, the sharp two-edged sword goes forth from his mouth, and with it he destroys the armies, as we've already mentioned. It shows, though, that he's going to rule with total authority, 
and uh, he is going to manifest swift judgment. Now, during the time of the millennial kingdom, there will only be saved people that enter into the kingdom. Well, let me just back up a little bit. After the Lord comes back, he's going to set up a throne, and the throne is going to be set up between uh, the Mount of Olives and uh, the, uh, the, the, the city of Jerusalem in what is, which is called Jehoshaphat's Valley, and that's the Kedron Valley. The Lord comes back, sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives, splits apart, massive valley. He's going to set up a throne of judgment there. Matthew chapter uh, 25 and verse 31 states that. And then he's going to the nations of the world who have survived the tribulation are going to uh, come before him. It's really individuals within the nations. He's going to judge them. The two groups of people, the unsaved are the goat people. They're put on the left hand. The saved people who are the righteous people are called the sheep people. They're put on his right hand. The sheep people enter into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. What happens to the goat people? Well, verse 41 of Matthew 25 says, they're taken out and in essence they're done away with. They're cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who enter into the kingdom are only saved people. They procreate, repopulate the earth, and their offspring are going to have to come to the Lord. Many will, but many won't. As Isaiah chapter 65 verse 20 tells us, many of these people who are born in the kingdom are going to live throughout the thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. If a person dies at a hundred years of age, he's considered in essence just a child. Today if a person lives to be a hundred years of age, we say God's been gracious and we celebrate their hundredth birthday because not many people make it to a hundred years of age. But there could be those who would sin because the sinner in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, it says, the sinner will be a curse. The sinner is that one who would try to do some evil, although there's not going to be much evil in the kingdom because Satan is bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years and he is not going throughout the world tempting men to do evil. But if one gets out of line, they are going to be put down very severely. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. You say, well, how's Jesus going to rule throughout the uh, kingdom with a rod of iron? We are going to be in the kingdom with him, and we, I believe, will be throughout the nations ruling and carrying out his righteous rule. We are in our glorified bodies. So we don't know what position we'll have at that time, but we are going to be ruling. Jesus uh, said to the church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as a vessel of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. 
And so it's speaking about here the Lord ruling on the earth with a rod of iron and the overcomer it mentions in verse 26 and he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end to him will I give power over the nations. So you see we are going to be carrying out his judicial rule here on planet earth. So he's going to be ruling with a rod of iron. This is the reign of the Lord. Well, the fourth thing I want you to see is refuge in God. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit speaking here in verses 10 through 12. You have here uh, the Holy Spirit advising the leaders of the nation. Notice what he says. Be wise now, therefore, all ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. It's kind of an ironic statement here that you'd have to tell kings and judges to be wise. You just wonder how wise those who are going to rule over us in the next administration are going to be. I hope they lift their hands and their hearts to God and say, God, give me wisdom to lead this people rightly. We don't know. But uh, God is saying to the kings and the judges then that they, yeah, be wise. Be wise in being discerning and be prudent and uh, your destiny is going to depend upon it. And he says, be instructed. Look to me for instruction, for me to lead you. Don't go the way of revolt. And then there's an appeal here in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve means here to worship God, be obedient unto him. He's calling upon the nations in his day and down through history to be wise and to be alert and, and be fearful and the word fear here, the context is speaking about a reverential, holy awe of God. And isn't that the beginning of knowledge? We're told over in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The beginning of knowledge is to have a godly fear, a reverential awe of the Lord. And this is speaking of submission, really, submit to God. So there's advice being given to the nations and their rulers in this context. And there is an admonishment here in verse 12. Kiss the son. And the word kiss here means to give homage and worship the son. It's very interesting that the Hebrew word for son in scripture is ben. But this word here for son is bar. It's an Aramaic word. Could God be using an Aramaic word speaking to the nations and saying uh, to the nations, be wise, look to me, humble yourselves, don't go off in revolt. Kiss the son, give homage and worship to him. For if you don't, he has another word to say to them in verse 12. And it's his anger. Lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled. How much? A lot? It doesn't say a lot there. 
kindle just a little. Now, you think of his anger and wrath in the tribulation, that seems like a lot. But all God has to do is kindle his anger a little and you will suffer. So this is an urgent call being mentioned here. Do it now. God's wrath will soon come. Submit to him. And if you do not submit to him, you're going to have to suffer his wrath. But there's an assurance here as well in verse 12. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Word trust literally means to take and seek refuge in God the Father and Jesus Christ. And isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what we're all about is to lead men and women, young people to Lord Jesus Christ because by putting trust in him, you find refuge. We look at our times, and the times are in crises. The world is like a time bomb ready to explode. If there's any one thing that the world needs, it needs Jesus Christ. But they're on a collision course with history, going down the wrong road, and hopefully through the Lord leading us in the place where he has put us or the influence and impact that we have on people that we will be able to impact our world for Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are businessmen and you travel internationally. Maybe you'll be going to Russia. Maybe you'll be going to China in the future. Who knows? But you will have an opportunity as God through his spirit opens unique opportunities for you to share the gospel you will be able to touch men and women for Jesus Christ. Well, this is the world as God sees it, I believe, from this point even and moving forward. But uh, in closing, I want to say this. This is really an, an evangelistic appeal. First of all, it defines the problem of nations and men. They're in rebellion against God. Secondly, there's an offered solution here, and the solution is what? It's God's Son. He warns that those in rebellion who do not come to God's Son, they are going to suffer judgment. And so there's the call here. Kiss the Son. Give homage to the Son. Worship the Son while you can. Surrender to the Lord your life. And uh, there is a road map here back to God for those who would live in rebellion against him. And I'll say that the door is still open here. It's still possible to come and kiss the Son, give homage to him, put trust in him, and find him as your refuge. Well, uh, there's a message here to the nations and the unsaved individuals. That's true. Uh, judgment will come upon you. But to the Christian, there's a message here as well. And the message is God is a refuge to a world in crises. I say this often at missionary or prophecy conferences. God is in sovereign control. Now, uh, we look at what's coming down the road 
in November in our country. Change is coming one way or the other. Change is coming. We don't really know what kind of change yet, but we can put our hope and God who is our refuge and we can see that he's sovereignly in control of what's going to happen. Let's look to him for peace, for solace, for hope. He's the one that we put our confidence in. Well, you know, uh, this is Psalm 2 that kind of paints a portrait, but we've read the whole book, haven't we? We know, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. We know how it's going to end, and we know that the Lord is going to be victorious. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you tell us ahead of time what your plans for the world are and how we should react and how we should be ready. We're so thankful that you've left us the road map and the door is still open. We pray for family members or neighbors who are unsaved. Open opportunities for us to share. Open opportunities for us to tell people the plan that you have for man and also tell them that if they don't come, what the result will be. Father, take these words, seal them to our hearts, and may we meditate on them during the conference and in days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.